as I'm watching the room right now, I'm remembering the comment that Rebecca made, <laughs> saying she knew she was teaching a young adult retreat because everyone was sitting on the floor. <laughs> Apparently that's changed. You guys have aged since you've been here. <laughs> it gets hard, right? <laughs> it looks like a good idea. I always like when, when people point to the fact that the only reason that Buddha wasn't sitting on a chair was because he was sitting under a tree in the forest. <laughs> you know, he didn't have a chair. So, <laughs> so all the statues look like that, <laughs> and we think we have to look like that too. And it's totally okay to not look like that. <laughs> I'm going to read something that I read earlier today, um, and I'm going to probably read it again, and I might read it a few times, just because something that you asked earlier is really echoing, you know, echoing for me, and that question about what are you as teachers still dealing with, and I want that to be an important part of my talk tonight, not only on a personal level, but just on a really important social level and cultural level. Um, but what I read, that means a lot to me. Um, and the thing is, I don't know who said it. So I don't know who to refer to. I know that it had something to do with the Diga Nikaya, which is the, um, one of the suttas. And it says, Buddhism arose in India as a spiritual force against social injustices against degrading superstitious rites, ceremonies, and sacrifices. It denounced the tyranny of the caste system and advocated the equality of all people. It emancipated all women and gave her spiritual freedom. So I feel like that's sort of um, a big part of the theme of my talk. A big part of why I, I talked to some of you, I don't know if all of you were at the Metta talk yesterday, but I talked to some of you about why I came to Buddhism, and part of it was because I felt like um, there was a personal responsibility in it that... Uh, didn't ask me to ask an outside source or force for permission or for um, clarification or for answers. You know, I, I um, grew up in a Catholic family and then I explored Native American traditions and I explored Hinduism um, amongst many other um, sort of healing modalities. I've, I've been around, as they say. <laughs> and I think that's good. I think it's important. I think it's given me some, some wisdom and some clarity. But it wasn't everything. You know, it wasn't exactly right for me. And what felt exactly right was when I came into the practice that said, there's this word, ehipasiko, come see for yourself. See for yourself what actually, what really works, how you can have less suffering in your life. And so 
what is being pointed out there is that it doesn't matter what we say. It doesn't matter what authority says. But that we need to internally look at how and why we might keep returning to the same suffering that we do. And that there's a way out. The Buddhist practice is very pragmatic, sort of non... Um, I don't know. For some, it, for some, it can have this very uh, sort of classically spiritual essence. But for me, it felt just in a, in a pragmatic way, it helped me to look at my suffering and it helped me to see how I could end it. How, if I did A, that B happened. Right? How if I didn't do A, that B didn't happen. Like, that was really simple. It was a simple equation. And so I want to talk a little bit about I want to talk about that. I want to talk about it in ways that I, I have a crazy process of writing a talk, and I'm really starting to understand it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's messy, um, and I feel like I feel sweaty and hot and like out of control <laughs> and uncomfortable. <laughs> and it's just like, ah, okay, that's, that's part of what you were asking. For me, I, giving a talk gives, creates a lot of anxiety for me, a lot of anxiety. And part of that I think about is it is it is the anxiety created because I feel like I have to fit into a form of some sort of dominant cultural idea of what a dharma talk looks like, right? Like there's just so many dominant cultural ideas that we feel like we have to fit into, and part of my anxiety I think fits into that. And because of some dear friends that I happen to be sitting with now and some uh, retaliation and uprising <laughs> that has occurred in some of these organizations and some of these you know, institutions, I'm feeling a little more comfortable with the way that I don't fit in right? so that I can be me and so that I can give a talk in the way that feels comfortable to me, which is spreading my papers all over. <laughs> they're handwritten, they're scribbled, they're last minute, and, and so be it. You know, that's, that's, how, that's how it feels okay for me, and I feel a lot of permission to do that here, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that. <laughs> So I want to talk about uh, dominant paradigms. <laughs> I want to talk about what I can't control. I want to talk about this idea of ultimate reality that's um, sort of introduced to us in terms of the Buddhist experience and in terms of liberation and freedom. 
I want to talk about relative reality and what's really happening on the ground and how we, the paradox of the two, this ultimate and relative. You know, when you guys have your like computer screen up and there's these multiple, I don't even know what to call it because I don't have that literacy. <laughs> but when there's a lot of things happening on one screen, <laughs> that's what's happening. And I, and, and I feel, and I, I feel like I want to ask, I, I want to answer your question from this morning. Because who I was 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, is totally different from who I am now. And absolutely, a thousand percent, the practice works. The practice changes our virtual reality. <laughs> it, what's the other word? Augmented reality. <laughs> it changes, it's changed my view. And sometimes I feel a little, like, a little bit like I'm a traitor. You know, like I've sold, maybe I'm a sellout. Because my view now, and maybe it's also because I'm over 50, right? Like maybe that's part of it. But my view now has a lot more ease and kindness and gentleness and acceptance than it used to. And sometimes I question that. You know, sometimes I'm not sure if that's okay. Sometimes I question my fight because I used to be a fighter. Like physically, like I used to actually fight people. <laughs> that was one of my favorite things to do. I love breaking noses. <laughs> I did it a few times, starting with my brothers. <laughs> you know, so sometimes I do wonder. Um, I, but I, I feel like my fight has changed. My fight's not gone by any means. You can ask my partner. He's <laughs> in the back of the room. Um, but maybe there's a little bit more discernment and wisdom in it than before, but it hasn't gone away. Okay, so how am I going to organize this? I think I'm going to start with this, this idea of ultimate reality. I'm going to start, I'm going to start big and, we'll, and maybe we'll go smaller and then go big in. Maybe that works. Um, so this guy right here, he was not a self-help guru. Right? He wasn't talking about, oh, how can you have a better relationship? Or, I'm, I'm not to, not to demean that. <laughs> not to demean that. But it wasn't about how to make more money or how to, you know, um, like it wasn't a how, he wasn't writing a how-to manual. Like his, his true ideal was full and complete liberation. And what that means is, it, is the 
ultimate in renunciation. You know, we took five precepts here. Monastics, I don't have my numbers totally right, but they're up in the 200s and the 300s. Women had more than men. <laughs> we can talk about that in a minute. <laughs> but, you know, their renunciation was up in the, in the, in the hundreds. So we're good at five, right? Like, we're like, I'm good. <laughs> that works for me. <laughs> but this idea of really, really, really letting go. And not being attached to things that I want to talk about next. Such as the relative reality around identity, you know, and how we see ourselves and how others see us in the world. But, you know, it's like there was this idea that we are all the same. There is no difference, not by caste or creed or race. Is anybody not allowed to be free? That was the invitation that is stated in the suttas, that is stated in you know, some of the scholarly writings that may or may not have been what the Buddha said, but it's what is stated, that we are all invited to be free. So no, one's, no one is not included in that. It doesn't matter if you think that you have freaky thoughts or if you feel like you're unkind or if your way of dealing with your sexuality or how you gender identify or the color of your skin or what family you were born into, none of that, none of that mattered. We were all invited to be free. And that felt really good to me. Like when I first read that, that felt really, really, really good to me. And so then there's this way that what, it, what that's saying is I have to give up all the ways I see myself. I have to give up all the ways that I identify with my suffering, all the ways that I have stated my identity. So here's my identity. My identity is I am biracial. I am cisgendered, heterosexual, mother of two, Buddhist, activist, right? I could, I could probably go on with that. I'm, I'm middle class. And so there's a way that we really kind of like, I feel a pride. When I say that, like I feel a pride. Like I, I really feel myself feeling good about that. That's, that's who Joanna is. That's how I identify. And it's not a pride because any of those things are right, but it's just a pride that I feel like I know who I am. And so then what I'm being asked by this sort of ultimate reality that the Buddha is presenting around freedom and full liberation is to put all of those things down. Right? 
But some of those things are what help me get through my day. It's what bolsters me. It's what makes me say that when I see a black man killed or assassinated for no reason, it makes me feel like, it makes me feel upset. It makes me feel angry. So my identity, because I identify as a biracial, mixed black and white woman, that's really going to upset me. And there's this other reality that's going on, right? So there's this paradox, this constant paradox that I'm experiencing as a, as a Buddhist practitioner, as somebody who believes in freedom. Does anybody else here experience that? I'm curious, like, am I alone in this paradox? Yeah. And so, you know, so here we sit, here we sit. Because there's this constant interdependence, constant. One doesn't, we can't do an either or ever, right? Like when we're asking the question, well, how do I, how do I, how do I solve this? What do I do? Well, we can't just sit in the, the one versus the other. It's impossible. And that was also constantly pointed to in the teachings. Everything affects everything. So I sort of, I, what I needed to do my, for myself, and it's sort of in the framework of the Four Noble Truths. Have you, have you all heard of the Four Noble Truths? Um, the Four Noble Truths are, well, it's such a bizarre thing about the Four Noble Truths, because I have some, I have some teachers, right? So I just completed a four-year training, and... Um, the Four Noble Truths, as I understood, were sort of the core four tenets of Buddhism, like the big deals. And then these academics and scholars and teachers sort of went, you know, actually, they're only spoken about four times in the suttas. So, so this thing that I held on to as we do, right, sort of fell apart for me. But I still, so, so, so when that happened... <laughs> Thanks for the humor, because <laughs> I think it's funny, too. <laughs> it's like, shit, that's what I believed. That's what I believed were these four noble truths, and they're not in the suttas that much, and it doesn't matter, <laughs> because they're still important. The teaching is still super important, and so how I had to break it down, because I was like, okay, these four noble truths, they aren't really da 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 whatever. So I, I broke it down into, so how the four, I'm going to tell you how the four noble truths are, and then I'm going to tell you how I broke it down in my mind and how I want to teach it. Is the first noble truth is that this thing called dukkha exists, right? And dukkha is often translated into suffering, this word suffering, but it's, it's also translated into what that which doesn't fit, that which is uncomfortable, that which 
is just uneasy. You know, so pain is dukkha. You guys have experienced pain, like physical pain in your bodies, pain in your minds, pain, the pain of things changing that we can't rely or depend upon anything. That's painful, right? Like relationships that break up. Painful. Or something that we thought was there for us, someone that we thought for us that was no longer there for us. Painful. That old age, sickness, and death. Painful. (laughs) Those are real. Those happen. So that's the first, the first noble truth, is that this suffering exists, that real, real life is real. You know, that people live, people age, people die. People don't get what they want, people get what they don't want. Like you guys can probably all relate to that, right? Like that's pretty basic. And then the second noble truth is the reason that this first one exists is because we want it to be some other way. So if we truly, really looked at and acknowledged that suffering was real and happened, if we didn't want it to be different. So this is, this is where I play with that sort of like the idea of what can't I control? That, that to me feels like the first noble truth. What can't I control? And so over the years, I've come up with a lot of lists about what I can't control because <laughs> I want to in a big way. And I notice that when I want to, it causes me a lot of pain. So what can't you control? What do you think you guys can't control? What are some ideas? Other people. Other people. I think that's, I, I feel like that's the biggest one. That was the biggest one for, even death, like I was like, death, whatever. Other people, <laughs> that one, I need to, you know, like, <laughs> I need to master. <laughs> Thank you. Other people, okay, what else? What can't we control? Thoughts. Okay, this is an interesting one. We're going to play with this one a little bit. You're right, and you're not right at the same time. So we're going to, we're going to play with that. What did they say? Pardon? What did they say? Thoughts. thoughts. Yeah. So thoughts. Definitely thoughts come in that we, can, we have no control over. Then what we do with them, let's see. What else? The future. The future. Yeah. And again, in some ways, like there's an interesting sort of, there's an interesting, so can't really control the future, but how we act today is going to have an effect on what happens next. Right? So, so it's a, again, just like the thoughts, it's a yes and a no. Mm-hmm. What can't we control? 
So I already said old age, like I know that's true because I'm watching my face fall, I'm watching my, my boobs fall, like I'm watching all kinds of things change, right? <laughs> old age is happening. Sometimes sickness, you know, there was, the, in, the, in the suttas, sickness is talked about as something that's um, in the first noble truth that we can't control. But I think a lot of science these days is sort of looking at something else, you know, around genetics and other things that we do have control over. Okay, so I, I have a, does anybody want to say anything else? Because I have a list of stuff that we cannot control. <laughs> okay, so you want to know. Yes. The weather. The weather. Okay, so again, this is a yes and. <laughs> this is a yes and. So for sure, when I'm on vacation in Hawaii and I bring my bikini and I want to get a suntan and when it rains, it's like, fuck, <laughs> right? Like, why did you rain? And then there's this whole idea around climate change. And how are we as humans participating in a new value, a new system? So, it's, so again, like I love what you three brought up because it's important. These are yes ands for sure. And there was a time, like at the time of the Buddha, that would have been a total yes. That would have been an absolute yes. And then now we're, we're questioning that now. You know, whether our human, our existence on this planet is changing the climate and the weather. So one that I love, and it's not mine, I want to give credit to Anushka, is the one around gravity. And I think it's a really important one. So I don't think it's important because we don't get gravity, but I don't think we pay attention to it enough. And I feel like it's very expletive of this idea of what we can't control, right? So, so here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold this here, and then I'm gonna open my hand, and what's gonna happen? Right, it's gonna fall. So, so that we're just like, okay, yeah, I don't, I don't have any control over that, right? I have zero control over that. But if I'm sitting here going, Okay, I'm going to be a really good person. I'm going to meditate all day. I'm going to go on retreat and renounce my cell phone. And I'm not going to have sex with the wrong person. And I'm, you know, like, <laughs> I'm going to eat vegetarian or whatever. Like, and we do that and say, okay, and then that, because I'm doing all that, nothing, that's not, I'm going to get my way. Right? Right. Right. But what's going to happen when I open my hand? <laughs> it's still going to fall. So these are these truths, these truths that we can't control. The first noble truth. And yet, how much time do we spend trying to control them? How much energy mind space, emotional space, do we spend trying to control other people? I want them to love me. I want them to like me. I was talking to a, a retreat earlier about my daughter's dirty room, you know, and it's just like nothing I do 
<laughs> it's going to change the fact that my 17-year-old's room is really messy, no matter how much I want it to be clean. And I can frustrate the hell out of myself thinking about it. But there are all these little things, like these ways that we want to judge or control or criticize other people for what they're doing and how they're doing it, that take up so much space. And I feel like this is a really important, noble truth to understand or to stand under, as one of our teachers, Ajahn Suchito, says. Standing under this understanding, like what a relief it would be. Like how good would it actually feel if you actually could say, I don't have any control over this and I don't even need to worry about it. Like how good would that feel? How much time would that free up? A lot. You know, and then I and then I want to move into this idea. Um, so that's that's the idea of like what we can't control and what it would look like if we really truly understood that and could just say, yeah, that's true, and I can right now not need to pay attention to that because then we're also given this alternate. So those are so. First noble truth one is that suffering exists. So all these things that we talked about and more, you know, stuff like heredity, like, you know, I happen to be born with a large ask and big lips <laughs> and nappy hair. And there was a time as a kid that I really, really didn't like that truth, that heredity. Now I dig it. <laughs> but it's sort of like, oh, man, it caused me so much pain as a kid. You know? And so these things that are just like true, are just true, that we really want to disagree with. So paying attention to that here now. And then also knowing that you have this other, so that's the first and the second noble truth. What, what can't I control in a way? Like what is suffering? That the cause of suffering and what perpetrates the suffering is that we want it to be different, right? So those are first and second noble truth. And then the third one is that there is a possibility for cessation. There's a possibility for freedom. There's a possibility to not have to suffer so much. That's, a, that's the one I think we all kind of want to go, yeah, yeah. I want to know more about that one. And then the fourth one is this eightfold path. This path towards suffering less. And so where I put that is like, so that was, so the first two are the what can't I control. And then the second two are like the what can I control domain. So, so one of my favorite riddles. Imagine that you're in a room with no windows and no doors. How do you get out? Stop imagining. Yep. <laughs> Stop imagining. Did you know the answer to that? 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you did, because this could have gone on for a while. We don't have time. <laughs> but, you know, imagine that you're in a room with no windows and no doors. How do you get out? You stop imagining. <laughs> and so this is like, I don't know, how, how my mind makes sense of this is like, this is sort of the, you know, this is, this is, we imagine our complications. We imagine our problems. We, we live into our suffering. I know that for forever I was so attached to my suffering because it gave me cred, right? Like kind of gave me street cred, my suffering. My story gave me cred. And as I heard a few of you say today, it was like, oh yeah, I'm realizing that I'm starting to let go of my suffering, but who am I now? Right? We don't know how to identify. We don't know who to be without the story of how we were, how our lives weren't okay. There's something about that that helps us connect to other people. You know, we find community through that. Like, there's all kinds of ways that our suffering helps us to connect to other people. So before I get into the what can I control, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of the ultimate reality of not-self that is taught in, in Buddhism, and then, and then the idea of identity self because we need both like we we have to because we can talk about this idea around not self and and anatta as we call it anatta meaning this like idea of a fixed and permanent self holding on to um chaz was you that was talking earlier about somebody talking about noticing like their fragmented idea of personhood was dissolving, right? So, so that happens. Like we, when we sit in practice like this, we notice this way that um, the way we hold on to our selfhood and who we are and our thoughts and our personifications, like it starts to dissolve. It can start to dissolve. Or there's also this way that we can get really like, super hard in it and defined by it. And that's okay, too. I'm not saying that that's no, not okay. But just like the, the idea around self and not self. So in this ultimate reality around the teachings, um, I may or may not have written something down about it. I don't know. Um, you know, it's this idea around... A fixed and permanent self is ever-changing, it's evolving, and it's not solid. It's not something to count on, it's not dependable. And if you think about it, I mean, even all of you, five years ago, like think about yourselves five years ago. And I'm sure you feel very different from who you were five years ago. A lot happens in five years. And so nothing, nothing, even if you have like this, so we can have this racial identity, you know, or we can have this gender identity. We can have a lot of ideas around who we are and how we show up, but it's also always changing. 
So this idea around anatta, not self, not this fixed and permanent self. Which is the higher teachings. It's this liberation teachings. It's the wisdom teachings. It's the not self-help guru teachings. You know? But we also can't deny like who we are on the ground every day, how we have to live life, how we have to show up, what it means to wake up in the morning, who do I feel like when I wake up in the morning, who do I engage with, how do I, you know, how am, how am I? And so having this moment of thinking about how who am I and the ways that we identify, the ways that we see ourselves engaging with the world, the ways that we see the world engaging with us. Because there's a lot of narrative that's involved here. There's a lot of narrative. And one of my, um, one of my favorite favorite teachers right now who's not a Buddhist at all. He's actually a Christian. His name is Brian Stevenson. And he, um, he's a lawyer. He's an activist. Um, he runs an organization called the Equal Justice Initiative. He's changed a lot of laws around juvenile justice, juveniles that used to be incarcerated um, at, you know, at 13, 14, 15 years old for life. Um, and the way that the penal system saw them as adults, even in uh, even when they knew that they were abused and they were wrongly treated and they didn't have equal um, and adequate life standards, and these kids would be put in jail for life. You know, and I'm not saying that their crimes were not. Um, important ones or volatile ones. But this guy, Brian Stevenson, he talks about this idea around the narrative. And I think the narrative is an important thing, um, even in like how we create stories here in our minds. And so when I talk about this idea around, so I talked about ultimate reality, and now I'm talking about this relative reality, who we are, what our identities mean, how our identities relate to our suffering. Right? And so, you know, imagine yourself walking down the street right now. Like really, like really imagining that. Imagining yourself walking down the street. And what does your identity feel like when you give yourself an identity? You know, and, and when you're doing it, are you seeing yourself through the eyes of another? Are you seeing yourself as other sees you? Are you seeing yourself as you see yourself? as you're walking down that street?
And what's the narrative around it? Does your narrative, you, you can open your eyes now again, but does our narrative create separation with those around us? Does it create division with those around us? I know for me it changes. You know, for me, dependent upon where I am, when I'm in a predominantly white community, for me, my narration is I don't feel as safe. That's my narration. I feel like, remember where I said, like, my ass and my lips and my hair, like, suddenly those all feel, like, a little uncomfortable to me. And so my narration changes a little bit. And then, therefore, how I relate to the people around me changes. And so it's just, I'm, I'm not pointing this out to make people uncomfortable, right? Our narration of selves. And I don't know how, how you narrated yourself. Like, we sort of draw ourselves into a cartoon, right? Like, here we are, and the, here's the cartoon, and then every every situation that we're involved in, we're redrawing ourselves in a way, in that cartoon, dependent upon who we're engaging with, who's engaging with us. And it's just, a, it's just an exercise in awareness. It's an exercise in how do I know how I engage with the world, how do they engage with me, and how do I want to show up? What are my choices here? And so I'm going to spend five minutes talking about what you can control. <laughs> and we, we, we will talk about it some more for sure. So we talked about what we can't control. We talked about the multiple realities of who we are, what life is, right? Like. There's so much that our society, our culture, our families, our schools, our systems bring. There's so much. It's multi-layered. When I look at another person, like I, I've, really, I've really worked on this practice of when I'm looking at a person, I'm not only looking at them. I'm looking at probably thousands of people that stand behind them, that have created them, that have created their way of thinking, their way of being. You know, every teacher, every friend, every person they come into contact with creates this being that's in front of us. And so here we are, like thousands of people behind you and thousands of people behind me, and we're all meeting together in this interconnected reality. And it's painful, and it's messy, and it's raw, and it's violent, and it's beautiful. And so here we are all together, all of a sudden. And then what can I do? What can I do? I know what I can't do, but what can I do? And so what this sort of eightfold path points to are the things that we can do to create a better existence for ourselves and for others. 
And this is what's important. This is what we need to pay the most attention to. It's how we show up in the world. So sila, our sila, our actions, our speech, our actions, our thoughts. So it points to what some of you said around our thoughts. Right? So yes, thoughts happen. Six senses. We have these six sense doors. Thoughts is one of them. You guys know the other five. I don't need to go through them. Thoughts is one of them. So they come in. And then as multiple teachers, as Alex, as Rebecca, were pointing to this morning and today and last night, like we then have this choice point. We have this place where thoughts happen and then what? Do we allow them to run rampant? Or do we, do we work with them and point them in the direction that's much more wholesome and skillful and points us in the direction of where we want to go, where our wise action is? Like if we're looking, so many of you brought up, what do I want to do? What am I going to do when I get out there? Here I feel like maybe I have a possibility, but I'm going to go out there and then what? So the then what is, if you can't sit every day, if you don't find a sangha, your actions, your kindness, your not causing harm, your commitment to that is really important. It's really important. So even if you can't meditate, like let's say like meditation's off the table. It's not even going to happen in your life. What else can I do? I can show up as a kind person in the world. I can show up and not cause harm. And does that mean being passive? Does that mean not standing up for myself? Does that mean not standing up for others that need my care? No. But what, what does happen when we are practicing, when we do throw the sort of meditation practice in, if we have the time, is a different level of wisdom and a different level of discernment that helps us know how to act wisely, how to move forward in a way that doesn't come from a place of confusion. I'm just going to use that word. I, I, I almost wanted to say anger, but it can come from a place of anger, and that's okay. Right? Like sometimes anger is very important. Anger shows us that things aren't okay. So how we move forward in our actions, in our speech, how we move forward understanding that that all people deserve to be free. Right? I want to go back. I want to go back to this quote. This feels important. I'm not going to read the whole thing. A spiritual force against social injustices, against dis- degrading superstitions, rites, ceremonies, and sacrifices. That was coming from, I think, a, a time when people were actually <laughs> like human bodies and limbs were <laughs> like ritually sacrificed. Um, it denounced the tyranny of the caste system and advocated the equality of all people. 
So there's a lot going on as we know. So much pain, so much inequality, so much violence, so much racial injustice. Not new to humanity. It's being brought up here 2,600 years ago. This is not new. What's new is our, our uh, availability, the availability of us seeing it. So really allowing ourselves to know that first to connect to that which is painful. So the sila, samadhi, and panya part of the eightfold path. The sila being our action, how we behave, how we don't cause future harm. The samadhi is our mindfulness practice, our effort towards really meeting. And I loved Alex's card analogy, like the two cards meeting. You know, really meeting the pain of what's happening right now and trusting ourselves and holding that. And then the panya, the wisdom piece. The wisdom that says that, yes, suffering exists. These things that I cannot control exist. It's true. Like, that's true. We're not getting rid of that. Humanity is not getting rid of that. How can I face that that's true? And how can I face that my actions cause a change? How I show up causes change. And then one last thing I want to add, and then I'm going to be done, because time is definitely up. Um, One of the things that the Buddha pointed to a lot was having wise friends. And one of my favorite quotes from the uh, Maha Mangala Sutta is, the highest blessing comes from avoiding fools. (laughs) (laughs) And associating with wise ones. So really paying attention to that way that what are we cultivating in our lives? How are we being? How are we showing up? Are we hanging out with fools? Are we hanging out with wise ones? I have a lot of faith and trust in you guys. This this isn't a pressure talk. But I feel really, really lucky to have you as the next generation. Yeah. This isn't easy stuff. I think I have a poem somewhere. Might not even matter. One of the things I, one of the other things I want to say is right now that it might feel complicated, the container of this retreat and the bell schedule and the sittings and the 
the things that um, we're asking you to do. But I'm really, I'm really going to ask you right now to trust this container. We, ha we have you guys. Like these containers have been held. They were saying the young adult has been going on for 14 years, right? And then IMS has been here 40, did they just have their 40th anniversary? 40 years on this, like on this schedule. They've been using this schedule for 40 years. And so I wanna encourage you, A, to hold the noble silence. It's really important. I know, it, I know it's tempting to want to talk to somebody and to share your experience with others, which you can do. Like, you have your whole life after this <laughs> to go do that. <laughs> and, I, you know, it's like, um, you know, some of you might have paid for this retreat. This isn't a twofer, right? Like, this is, this is like you, like you. <laughs> you didn't pay for another person. And that there are really good reasons why we're doing it the way that we do it. So I'm, that's just a, a reminder. The other is that it's, it's very tempting because you don't have your technology, because you don't have your text devices to want to write notes to the teachers. <laughs> and we love them. You know, like, it feels old school in a way, because, like, well, most of us come from a time when writing was really awesome and, like, and, and, no, and note passing was nice, you know. Um, but pay attention to when you want to write a note and why. And is it just to, like, get some sort of, like, feedback? You know, you're used to texting. Pay attention. See what you can hold for yourself, because a lot of this is about what can we hold. For, what can we hold? What can we process? See what it's like. The first pass, not to write the note. Try a first pass, and then if the second pass, like pay attention to the second pass. Pay attention. Like just keep paying attention to the why. What it's like to sit with your discomfort, and not maybe not writing the note, not talking to the friend. We all really trust this container a lot. And we know that unless there's a real true emergency, which is sort of what we consider, consider the notes and the meetings for, are, are, are real emergencies. Um, but see what, it, see what it's like to trust yourself, to hold it yourself. Even if, it's, even if it feels uncomfortable, see what that's like. There's a strengthening in that. Okay, I'm going to read this poem that I'm not really that connected to, and then we'll be done. <laughs> Don't do it. Okay, I'm not going to do it. Do it. Don't do it. Do it. Don't do it. I'm going to do it. Okay. Pablo Neruda, keeping quiet. Now we will count to 12, and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second 
and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it's about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Now I will count up to 12, and you keep quiet, and I will go. So I'm going to count to 12, and then I'm going to ring the bell.